Could you find yourself making two plus two equal five work as a mathematician? No, I, I actually cannot. There's one example where if you change some of the meanings around and you fuddle with stuff, it's true, but it's trivially true, which means it doesn't, it doesn't tell you anything. So no, I don't think two plus two ever equals five. It's a very good example of how they think. What they would say is that two plus two equals it doesn't matter. But to claim four would be a hegemonic discourse, and that therefore we have to ask who it benefits to say that two plus two equals four. If you were to go all the way into woke theory and crystallize it, that's what you would get. That's like the crystal meth version of, of woke theory. James Lindsay is a colleague of Helen Pluckrose, who was on the podcast just a few weeks ago. Together with Peter Boghossian, the group faked woke or social justice academic papers and got them published in prestigious journals. These included bogus ideas like that dogs engage in rape culture, that men could become less transphobic by inserting things up their back passages, that kind of thing. The idea was to show that there is bias in academia towards social justice ideas. James has a doctorate in maths, there's an S at the end of the word, American listeners, and a background in physics. He also has a huge following on Twitter and recently caused a storm by arguing that 2 plus 2 does indeed equal 4. This may sound obvious, but his critics, including many respected academics, have been suggesting it could also equal 5, in a worrying echo of the kind of doublethink described in George Orwell's 1984. James is suggesting that this is part of the problem with how woke people think and how they'll twist words and meaning to suit their agenda. This week, James and Helen have a book coming out. It's called Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender and Identity and Why This Harms Everybody. Make sure to get hold of it. The podcast does get a little mathematical early on. And if you listen closely, you can actually hear the moment my brain begins to melt, just as he is talking about two concatenated ones. But we do start to move away from maths after a few minutes. I certainly felt out of my depth throughout, so I'm just going to explain some words to the unacquainted. A lot of people have been asking me what woke means. Um, not everyone's on Twitter all the time, and that's fair enough. It just means a social justice warrior. Basically, the people telling you to put certain things in your social media profiles to point out the suffering of certain groups. In its essence, it's actually quite a good thing. Postmodernism, in this context, refers to the way many woke people appear to think and how they stress there is no objectivity. For example, 2 plus 2 equals 4 would, in their theory, be the result of white colonization. And finally, a hegemonic discourse. I've just looked up what that means because James used it a lot. Uh, it's part of the woke theory that there is a ruling class that is above many other systems in a pyramid of oppression. Just a warning, James has a dry and sardonic tone, so often when he's saying things like wristwatches are white supremacy, he's actually imitating woke people he's encountered. Uh, he doesn't really believe that. You can't see, but he's rolling his eyes on the screen. You can find video trailers of this episode and all the others on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Both are andrewgold underscore OK. Do follow and subscribe to this podcast and leave some reviews. I need some reviews or something. I read every one of them and really appreciate them. Next week is Mary Turner Thompson with the most insane, ridiculous story I've ever heard about how a psychopath turned her life upside down by convincing her he was a spy infiltrating Israel and Palestine. He was actually off having many different families and dozens of children, while stealing hundreds of thousands of pounds from each partner and wife, the ultimate bigamist.
And the week after, I'm delighted to be welcoming journalist and conservative peer Daniel Finkelstein. But for now, it's James Lindsay. When I spoke to Helen, she left her phone on loud, so it just beeped every three or four seconds. It was just beeping, beeping. It's very um, actually annoying to be near Helen with her phone because of that. Yeah, is that right? So it wasn't just me. I kept thinking, oh God, it's it had gotten past the point where I could say to her, do you mind turning it off? It had already been like 15 minutes. I thought, oh, I'm just going to leave it. And quite a few people commented afterwards like, oh, ask your guests to turn their phones off, will you? For what it's worth, uh, I have set my phone to silent. The only sound it makes is the alarm clock in the morning. Literally no other Even that, sound. Even you could get one of those watches that vibrates to wake you up in the morning. Yeah, it's not going to happen. I'm not wearing no. a watch. Do you not wear watches? No, I oh can't. Oh, my God. And you're a mathematician. Yeah, but they're white supremacy. Is that right? Yeah, it's a thing. What do you mean? No, it's a thing. I actually had to go trace it because I said this a few times and I made one of those woke minis as a joke saying that white supremacy now includes wearing a wristwatch, among several other things. And we could list tons of things, loyalty, responsibility, punctuality, reliability, (laughs) uh, civility. You know, we can just go down the list of things that are also white supremacy culture, epistemic adequacy, knowing what you're talking about, science, reason, rationality, two plus two equals four, apparently. Um, Logic, all of these things are white supremacy, but I said wristwatch. And what had happened, this is very interesting because we almost put it in cynical theories, but we didn't because we couldn't find the citation. It's like, I don't make this stuff up. I had read somewhere that wristwatches were taken as a sign of white supremacy and it had something to do with the idea that people would have to keep time and keep to a schedule. Punctuality is definitely a feature of white supremacy. Is something we keep hearing people say. That's not the reason you don't wear one though, is it? No, I just don't like how they yeah. feel. <laughs> Fair enough. Tell me, this is so this should be the easiest question a mathematician could ever face so what is two plus two uh it is the addition of two very small positive integers it, it, there's nothing really mysterious to two plus and two and what's the answer uh four um as it turns out uh, i mean it's been a number of things uh of course most famously maybe it was in in orwell's 1984 mm. um okay so i'll tell you the story of how this happened it is my fault actually and I think I can act, I can genuinely claim blame for the two plus two equals five month long nonsense on, on twitter.com. Basically a graphic design person reached out to me and thought it'd be fun to make these kind of cute little posters. She wanted to call them woke minis. We talked it over. I thought it was fun and funny. We started to make them, you know, so the idea would be like some little quip mm. satirical definition of how the woke think about an idea. One of them that I think I made was something like white privilege is what all white homeless people have that makes them richer than Oprah. And so this woman's emailing or DMing me on Twitter and she's saying, I'm trying to understand how they think. What would they say about two plus two equals four? Would they just say that it's five? What would they say it's three? It's a very good example of how they think. What they would say is that two plus two equals, it doesn't matter. But to claim four would be a hegemonic discourse. And so we should be very skeptical of that hegemonic discourse. And they would say that that was arrived at by a political process and that therefore we have to ask who it benefits to say that two plus two equals four. So they wouldn't deny that two plus two can equal four. They would would get as like the crystal meth version of- of Could you find yourself making two plus two equal five work as a mathematician? 
No, I, I actually cannot. Uh, I've wrecked myself for the last few days trying to think of even one non, like I can, there's one example where if you change some of the meanings around and you fuddle with stuff, it's true, but it's trivially true, which means it doesn't, it doesn't tell you anything. So no, I don't think two plus two ever equals five. Um, but anyway, I, I made one of these woke minis for two plus two equals four. And I said, it's a white Western uh, equation that uh, is used to marginalize other possible values. So I put it on on the 8th of June. It got some traction. It was funny. People laughed. My point with them, of course, was to get people to download them and share them saying, see, this is what they actually think this. And so on the 5th of July, Nicole Hannah-Jones of the New York Times Magazine, who did the 1619 Project, tweeted something about, you know, objectivity and standards or whatever. You know, she's got an attitude in her tweets. It's one of her tweets. Somebody, as far as I know, that's just one of my followers, grabbed that two plus two equals four woke mini and stuck it underneath, replied to her with the woke mini, which is what I wanted people to do with them in the first place. And it has my handle on it. And she knows who I am. Says that conceptual James on the, on the thing. So she knows who I am. So she tweeted and said, using uh, Arabic numerals to, uh, you know, defend white Western culture or something like this is so damn classic. And so that was on the 5th of July. And then you can kind of track it. If you go look up two plus two equals four or two plus two equals five on Twitter, you can see that once she tweeted it, the whole cascade started of these kind of, you know, woke or semi-woke math people and math educators in particular scrambling. In fact, one woman tweets, how do we make two plus two equals five a true statement? basically, so I'll be wrong. So there's this huge cascade of them trying to defend the idea that two plus two can actually be different values. They should have picked a different number besides five, because five is a hard one to do. In fact, as I said, I don't think it's What possible. could you have done then? I would have chosen that's 11. possible? <laughs> no, but there's a trick. It's not possible. But 11, meaning one followed by another one, as we would say in, in you know, to be very formal about the language, two concatenated ones, in base three numerals rather than base 10 numerals means okay. four. And so two plus two equals two concatenated ones in base three is a true statement. Yeah. See, this this is a thing. So I, I don't consider myself a woke person or whatever. And my natural thing to do is to, is to sort of seed ground and say, you're a mathematician, that's your background. There are probably things that maybe I know more about. I, I, probably nothing actually, but, but, but the maths... I can just go, okay, he knows that, I'll listen to that. Whereas it just seems like with the woke culture, it's that everybody is a genius and nobody's a genius, uh, which is scary. That's right, that's right. So, and then what you have now is like this cottage industry of of little math educator activists. I don't want to say that they're Twitter, Twitter people. They're not. Like uh, one of these people is Trada uh, Sharuda, and I, I don't know that, she's not a household name is what I mean. But what she is, is she's the executive director of the state of Washington's ethnic studies program. And she's an ethnic studies math teacher. And so she is one of the people that's very vigorously pushing that we need to accept that two plus two can equal other values, because otherwise we presume objectivity in math and we cannot presume objectivity. And so you see now somebody who has massive amounts of power in a state administrative role that's sanctioned by the governor of that state in, in the U.S., openly declaring 
that two plus two equals four or five or whatever they want is a meaningful battleground in a larger war to remove belief in objectivity in subjects in the STEM fields for M being math and STEM. So the broader goal is to erase objectivity. And this sounds all so conspiratorial and weird. So you look up, well, who are the scholars that are working in this? I, I don't want to call it mathematics reform project, but this weird it's a mathematical bit of sort of Maoist, isn't it? This sort of instead of land reform, it's it's objectivity reform or math reform, as you said. Yeah, it, it's it's you know Mao was you know he was all about material production, seizing the means of material production because it's a very traditionally Marxist thing to do. This is a different animal that we're dealing with today. The goal is to seize the means of cultural production rather than material production. It's not economics. It's interesting. It's culture itself. And so education is a major site of cultural production. So what they want to do is seize the means of education. So they want to make it so that all education is on their terms. But what's one of the major stumbling blocks to that? Well, am I allowed to swear yeah. on your show? Yeah, the fucking truth. That's what's in the way. So they have yeah. to get rid of it because the truth is in the way. They can't make everything about social justice as they define it, which is a, its own can of worms. If they actually have to, you know, defer to material reality and things like two plus two equaling four. Is there some truth in the whole woke thing? The answer, of course, is always yes. When you have large groups of people all saying the same thing and claiming that it's deeply, profoundly true in some way, it's probably inaccurate to say that they're all dead wrong. It is much, much more likely that they're pointing at something badly. They're pointing at something real and doing a bad job of pointing at it. Okay. When we said that, the, you know, we believe that the sun went around the earth because obviously it's just going across the sky and it looks like it's going around the earth. If you, if you imagine that, that was people pointing at a fact of reality and being badly mistaken about it. They weren't dead wrong. Okay. Uh, if, if you see the difference now. So what do you like about the woke stuff? So the woke thing is pointing at the fact the law isn't sufficient to clean up all problems that arise in terms of discrimination, prejudice, uh, disenfranchisement, these social injustices in the very real meaning of the term. I think the best and cleanest example of this, in fact, is the, the issue around rape. Uh, I've thought about this, of course, for a very long time, long before woke was on the scene. And so we can have very, very clean laws, very, very strict laws about rape. We can adjudicate convicted rapists to many, many years of their entire lives in prison. Most people actually agree with this, right? We can, we can have that. We can have almost everybody in society agree that that's the correct laws. And then remains the problem that the overwhelming majority of rape cases present no evidence that can be adjudicated in a court of law. So now you have a real problem women being raped, primarily women, it's not just women, but primarily women being raped, and there is no workable pathway to justice for this. When we switch out of, say, so you can see, though, though, if that's the case, you have to find a way to achieve justice some other way. Do we accept some level of vigilantism about this? If you rape my daughter, do I get to go kill you? Is, you know, or probably not, right? But what do we do? And one of the things you can do is go rail about rape culture and say that the culture itself is still too endorsing of rape and try to change the culture from within to where 
uh, rape accusations are given vastly more weight, believe all women, are given vastly more weight as evidence than they would have been previously. But obviously this violates due process of law and you start having these conflicts. So yes, they're pointing at something. When we look at race and racism, I think the data lately show that on average, if a white applicant and a black applicant were to go apply for jobs, say equally talented people, and they went to apply for jobs, it turns out that on average right now, the numbers seem to work at that black people have to apply to, if, and I'm quoting some research that I've only read lightly, so I, I apologize if it's not quite right, but uh, they have to apply to one more job on average than white people do okay. in the United States to get the job. So if you have to apply to four jobs, they have to apply to five to get to get one. And this kind of stuff wears you out. It, it, it is exhausting. And it's very difficult to adjudicate properly. Uh, it's very difficult to prove in a lot of cases that there's even discrimination occurring, especially if it's just unconscious or whatever. And I will use unconscious instead of implicit bias. And I actually need to disambiguate more about those because implicit bias is a claim to be measurable thing that's probably utterly bollocks. And unconscious bias is this more nebulous, vague term that allows for more expressions of it, like just the uh, rough acceptance of stereotypes. Mm. And so they point to things like this and the law can't, you can't make the law be about what people think in their, the privacy of their own minds. And so if the privacy of their own minds contains various stereotypes about certain racial groups that either benefit, benefit or harm those racial groups, that becomes a thing. And the woke movement is pointing at that. And so pointing it out is a totally legitimate thing. Analyzing it with a completely shit theory is a completely different thing. And prescribing the worst possible solutions to it is yet another thing. And so I do see a lot in the woke movement that there is to be listened to. But that doesn't mean that you take the whole thing. You asked about postmodernism, and I won't get into the details of it. But I do like the idea of cracking open your thoughts to a, a much wider perspective. Okay. I like the postmodern aesthetic and art. I don't like the idea, though, that all knowledge is socially constructed and uh, therefore, you know, we have to always examine the political process underneath it, blah, 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 blah. It just goes too far. I like to play with words. I mean, I think that if he were still alive and we could cross the language barrier that Derrida and I could have a great time over drinks, screwing around with language, making jokes and so on. And I like that kind of wordplay. It doesn't mean that I think that of grammatology is a useful text for much of anything. I first started feeling, I think, what you're saying about maybe the laws not being sufficient enough, so people are overreacting. When I was working at uh, a newspaper, The Sun, uh, like 10 years ago or so, there was a huge thing in the UK about press uh, press freedom and the press going too far in like hounding celebrities and things like that. So the point was, I mean, The Sun... Uh, and and it's it's sort of sibling newspaper, the News of the World. They were hacking people's phones, which they're not supposed to do. Mm -hmm. It's illegal, and they did it sometimes to to horrible uh, consequences. For example, there was a, a young girl who was like abducted and killed, and because they got into their phone, her phone, to find out her, her voice messages and stuff, it, the family thought that she must have been accessing her own phone. They could they could hear that her phone, her voicemail had been accessed, um, but actually she died unfortunately. So those are the kinds of things they were doing. So everybody was going crazy. There was this hysteria among celebrities and everyone in the UK of like we have to clamp down. And I was just thinking, I was like twenty one at the time, and I was just thinking. But but we already have a, a law for that. They were breaking the law, and now they're caught, and now they're going to prison. 
So I don't understand. Yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. a similar thing, isn't it? It's so now now they want to restrict restrict what I saw as free speech because of some people breaking the law. Right, right. And so this is very much like that. With like, for example, the rape issue. To get very specific, I don't think that there's any way to actually stop it. Mm. The overwhelming majority of rapes are caused by an overwhelming minority of men who would be overwhelmingly beat up by the overwhelming majority of men if the overwhelming majority of men had the opportunity to get a hold of them. And those people are primarily predators and sociopaths. And the two kind of core problems are very closely related, but in opposite directions that all societies actually have to deal with are the sociopath problem hmm. and the free rider problem. Yeah. There are some percentage of the population who just aren't going to work and are going to try to milk the system to get by. There's some proportion of the population who are going to try to exploit the system because they have no sense of empathy. Screaming about rape culture, if you were to boil it down to the ultimate bottom thing, is somebody saying the sociopath problem is not being solved adequately. When you see the conservatives railing about the welfare state and blah, 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 what they're saying, if you boil it down to its purest expression, is we aren't being serious enough about the free rider problem. And there are points to be had within that. Um, but a lot of lack of clarity comes up, especially when you start adding emotionally charged language like moocher. I had a sociopath on this show uh, a couple of weeks ago. I saw that. I went to your Twitter earlier uh, yeah. just to check and see because I was like, who, why did I agree to this again? <laughs> not, not anything personal. It's, I get like three of these a day, man. Yeah. I'm happy you've done this one. I saw Helen too. You know, I was like, that's what got me. Because if you would have just come in and said, oh yeah, BBC ball, I'm like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was like, Helen was on here. I'm like, oh, Oh, okay. Yeah, she was really nice, man. And she was up for it. Because, well, so in the UK, I had a few documentaries come out. I haven't been into Twitter, so it's all a new thing for me. That's a nightmare. It's mad, the whole thing. And that's how I came across Helen and then you. But what was my point? What was I going to say? don't even remember. Well, now. you had a sociopath on. I had a sociopath on. And I do worry that because the guests are going to be so different every week. I really worry that sometimes they'll be sort of intellectuals and sometimes, and then they'll see, because I, I had a pedophile as well a few weeks ago. I think it's actually important to have those kinds of conversations. It's important to understand what's going on. And to bring as much sunlight and honest clarity to the questions as possible. The point I was about to make is that the liberal systems that we use in general, whether those are you know, knowledge systems or those are legal systems, nobody's claiming that any of them are perfect. It's not about the specifics that the woke people are arguing about. It's actually about the underlying approach. And they are, I would say, semi-justifiably very frustrated with the failures of the processes that we have to create the kind of justice that they think the world deserves. And if you take some of the, the wacky stuff out, their impulses are correct. And I actually agree with those impulses. And that frustration turns into a desperation to do something, which leads them into these kind of, you know, very bad solutions. It's like I've had this conversation with so many religious people. They're like, oh, people are looking for meaning in their lives. And I think a lot of the people maybe in the woke orbit are. And so they're virtue signaling and they kind of have hollow lives and so on. But the woke proper are all about control. And control is one of the three primary psychological axes or psychosocial axes, I should say, in the psychology of religion that people turn to belief in a god to try to satisfy the sense that there is control in the world. And so when you see these kind of totalitarian things rise up out of especially what's obvious and comprehensible frustration, even if you don't agree with the source of the frustration, you can comprehend why it's there. Once you kind of hear them out, that's where you run into situations like what we see where people are so desperate and so hungry to get that control 
that they'll tip into authoritarianism and totalitarianism to exert control over a world they feel like is out of control. Um, and that's why I think the woke ideology from a psychological perspective is so bad is because it teaches people to become more sensitive to those things that are triggering them into the frustration rather than less. It's not teaching people to take distance away from those problems so that we can find rational and successful solutions to them. It's teaching people to dive into those emotions and that frustration and that feeling in particular of being out of control. The world is out of control. There's systems of racism everywhere. People are being killed in the streets every day for doing nothing. Ah, And so when you get in that kind of a place, it's like a panic loop. And the only thing you can do is either abandon ship or try to clamp down and, and lock down the whole thing. And so that's sort of what you see. You see this nihilism trying to destroy everything that's abandoning ship. And then you see this desire to seize control with the ideology that they believe is the most poignant way to talk about the issue. Wow. The, the virtue signaling really drives me crazy, actually. It's really gotten to a point. This thing of like putting on their Instagram, you know, I'm an anti-racist. And then the next day, that same person will espouse something anti-Semitic or something. <laughs> uh, and that's the thing, because nobody mm. thinks they're racist. So everybody putting off, oh, let's let's be against racism. Well, like, obviously, yeah. Yeah, but. yeah. yeah. Um, virtue signaling from a psychological and sociological perspective is also very interesting. It's one of the most important things humans do. But when we say virtue signaling, what we actually mean is excessive virtue signaling or kind of uh, virtue signaling that is not in alignment with genuine virtue. Um, so sig- empty virtue signaling where you're doing the signal, but you're not doing the virtue, which is what you're actually speaking about. That's all of them. Uh, yes, very much so. I, had a, I used very to live with so. somebody, I remember, who used to go on about saving a group of people, but she never did the dishes. <laughs> hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random 
IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. So the thing is, what I would love to do if I had like a magic wand, and let me disclaim, first of all, the author of this book and I are not in league. In fact, I don't even really like him. Okay. <laughs> but yeah. uh, you're just arguing with everyone. It's Twitter. It's everywhere. How are you? You've got high blood pressure from it. I used to get that way, but... <laughs> What happens when you meet with your family and stuff for like dinner? There must be arguments. No, who? No, actually, I don't <laughs> drag it into my personal life very much. But, you know, if people bring it up all the time and and then usually it doesn't go real well. Um, <laughs> I forgot what I was going to say now. There was somebody who you don't like who, who wrote something. Oh, yeah. Paul Bloom. Paul Bloom wrote a book called uh, Against Empathy. Okay. But the point is that he's there are two forms of of empathy or two forms of altruism, if you want to look at it, one that you could broadly classify as emotional or emotionally driven, one that you could classify as intellectual or effective. And what this is, is an outgrowth of extraordinary caring too much while doing nothing practical. And so what you would take, what I would hope they would take from it is that the, you know, the virtue signal, the this kind of like hashtag activism or even the real activism where they're getting the issue backwards because they care so much. It's like I see these people and they're like, well, the harm that trans people are facing, the harm, the harm. It's like, breathe. Let's calm down. There are some harms. That's right. Let's calm down. Let's take a step back. And now let's try to understand all of the details of the situation rather than focusing on the immediate pain and panicking about that pain. Let's step back, go learn dispassionately as much as we can about the situation, and then craft the most reasonable and effective response that minimizes that harm. Is there not an argument that these people, uh, even if you might call them hysterical or a little bit further, do they not move the Overton window a little bit further one way or the other? Yes, they do, actually. So we need them in a way. And it's a very complicated conversation to have about the utility of moving the Overton window and the utility of having a radical entity alongside. I spend actually an inordinate amount of time thinking about the way that the Black Power movement created, for example, an Overton window shift that made Martin Luther King's message much more, the civil rights movement's message much more acceptable palatable to a broad audience. And so there is something to this. But you can't have everybody moving the damn Overton window, right? (laughs) You actually do have to have that sane center. And if the movement is the Overton window moving people have literally turned around and started bashing the crap out of the sane people in their on their side to the point where those people are scared for their careers, scared to speak up and so on. You're what you've done now is you again, you've gone off of the sense of there's there would be an intellectually strategic way to do that. And then there's an idiotic way to do that. And you've stepped into the idiotic way. Um, and the idiotic way has been played out again and again and again in history when finally, you know, the Overton window movers break free and start to run wild. And you call these things like the reign of terror in the French Revolution. 
But it's the same kind of argument that, that, you know, Richard Dawkins used to famously make about religion is like, yes, we should definitely have an open mind, but not so open that your brains fall out. What is the darkest theory of like how, how where this can go sort of woke thinking? What's the worst thing that could happen? In queer theory, it would be a complete uh, dissolution of, in particular, say, dark uh, sexual norms whatsoever, including pedophilia, you know, animals. I'm talking about dead people. I'm talking about children. I'm talking about properly screwed up stuff. But do you really see it going that way? Uh, you asked what the darkest possibility was. Okay. But yes, they're already trying to do, to, to do it with pedophilia. So they're trying to claim that it's, it's a sexual orientation. Uh, you can go all the way back to Michel Foucault explicitly arguing against age of consent laws, you know, sex and gender. If you erase gender, it becomes very confusing to understand who people are. Uh, people don't understand themselves. Um, with the trans movement, young women in particular are extraordinarily psychologically susceptible to grooming. They have a lot of insecurities in their bodies. I mean, we already know about the eating disorder problem, but a lot of people don't understand that these are actually very tightly linked. The proportion of people who are trans, especially uh, young women who decide that they're trans, that also have eating disorders mm. is, is, is astonishing. And then you can actually kind of see that it's all because it's being played upon in forums that are playing, that are digging into the insecurities about their bodies and telling them ways that they can, again, exert total control over something they feel like they can't control, which is how people perceive their bodies. This is all covered in queer theory as totally acceptable. You're talking about race, on the other hand, race war. The, the literal race war that motivated Hitler to try to create the Aryan race Hitler's beliefs, a lot of people don't understand these. His belief was that a race war was an inevitable human result. It was coming no matter what. And the purpose of building the Third Reich was to build the, and the Aryan race, was to build that group that would win the race war when it came. So you had to get rid of all of the racially defective things as he saw them so that they couldn't possibly pollute the gene pool. That race war that, hit, that Hitler believed was at the end of the line is exactly the kind of thing that the, the end of critical race theory could stoke. Absolute inability to empathize across race, absolute claims on, on victimhood status, which victimhood is known sociologically to be competitive. If you come in, if you and I sit down for a beer, we meet at the, at the pub and you sit down and I'm like, how's your day, Andrew? And you're like, oh, I just had such a shit day. Yeah. And I'm like, it's, it takes an effort to say, <laughs> you know, tell me about it as opposed to, yeah, mine too. Let me, let me tell you about how bad mine was. Story topping. Yeah. I had a bit of a tiff with, there was a, there's a famous rapper in the UK. Did you hear about him? Wiley? A guy called Wiley? He just came out, he's like a rap guy, and he just came out for like two days straight. And once once every minute or so, he wrote something like, um, the Jews are slippery people. We have to kill the Jews. It was none of the Zionist, anti-Zionist stuff. It was just Jews, Jews, Jews. Um, wow. Yeah. And so I sort of, sort of spoke to him and had a bit of a back and forward with him. And then somebody who was a black Jew had a go at me saying, why are you giving him a platform? Do you know what this is doing for black Jews? And I was like, I don't know. Why can't I be a victim for one second? Because I'm, I'm Jewish, by the way. Um, and I thought, why can't I be a victim for one minute without somebody else being an even better victim than me? And I just thought, I can't. Mm, yeah, victimhood's Ugh. competitive. And so when you erase the ability for races to understand one another, and you claim that, that each race has its own uh, culture that's shaped by the forces of society that they can't escape, you've now made it impossible to have conversation. If everything's just your lived experience versus my lived experience, 
and there's no way to adjudicate. There's no conflict resolution method like liberalism where we treat everybody as individuals and we treat people equally. We try to be as colorblind as possible. The only, the end of that road is war and the axis upon which that war gets fought is race. Yeah. And so race war is at the end of that, that line. The more real likelihood is also very dark, which is to introduce a social credit system. So somebody who go out, goes out and is violent, well, they're going to lose their social credit. So now we can make sure that those people don't do it. People who show up and do their job and don't complain and swallow their pride and you know don't go against anything, they earn money maybe, or they actually just earn social credit. Social credit becomes your 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 ability to buy things. You you have an app on your phone. You just scan it at the store. That's how you buy things. And so you can actually move the entire economy to a means of are you participating in society correctly or not in a very broad sense. So you're being a good person in society, a good citizen, no longer just gives you moral cash that people may or may not know about. It gives you actual uh, cash <laughs> that you can you can use. That is what happens when... Uh, I mean, J.K. Rowling's maybe not a good example because she's so wealthy anyway. But I mean, when they start saying right. they're going to stop uh, publishing her book, people are not going to buy her book and that kind of thing because she fell foul of the particular rules of the day. But even people like J.K. Rowling's a good example because J.K. Rowling's not immune to this. Having billions of dollars, if it were a complete switch to the social credit system, they would literally be able to say that the only way she can get credit is by giving away all of her money to the causes that they dictate. That would be the thing that they would agitate to bring into uh, the system, which is that somehow your behavior as a citizen contributes to understanding how you are able to participate in the economy of that, that society, which in a broad principle sense, isn't necessarily, isn't necessarily a horrible idea, but in the sense of the realities of life and how it can be abused, especially if a particular ideology is controlling what counts as, as, earning social credit and what costs social credit, it becomes a very dangerous thing. It would bring a new meaning to the word socioeconomic, I think. Oh, yeah, very much so. So but I do want to ask you just a little bit, if you could explain to, to listeners, I know Helen already did a few weeks ago, a little bit about what, just very briefly, the grievance studies, um, what you did. Uh, so we saw a problem. We tried to comment on the problem the normal ways, and we got called racist, sexist, bad actors, far right, blah, 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 blah. So that didn't work. And they just ignored us. And then we tried to invite conversations. Peter uh, Bogosian working with us, but he kept inviting people from the gender studies department to come sit on stage and have a public conversation with him and with other relevant people. And eventually they reported him for harassment for inviting them to come participate. Even, you know, they politely declined. He didn't make a big fuss about it. Nothing happened. And so he'd invite them again. Hey, we're doing another event. Why don't you come show up? Nope. And eventually they reported him to his university for harassment of uh, women and minorities. You know, you know, what's funny is that I don't know anything about this. I've never met him as well. But instantly, I think probably a bad guy then because because he was reported. And that's that's quite scary. Yeah. About just if somebody's That's how it works. Yeah. I now think he might be a bad guy, even though I know that makes no sense because of what we've just spoken about for an hour. Yeah. And so we were like, well, there's got to be something else. And so we started writing fake papers. And so what we actually started off doing, and it's very important to understand that there were actually two different things that we ended up doing, was trying to properly hoax the literature in these fields like gender studies, especially gender studies and masculinity studies. And our hoaxes did not work. 
we failed miserably at those. We failed for one of the journals finally wrote us back and told us why they weren't going to take a, take the paper that was uh, sent to them. And it was all the right reasons. It wasn't research. There was no understanding of the literature, blah, blah, blah. All the, all the right reasons. They're totally correct. So at that point, we had to change tack. And our new project was let's understand what we're up against and see what we can get published and what license we can, you know, take to make it funny and crazy and ridiculous. Were you sat around like, how, how does this work? The three of you are sat in a pub having a few beers and it was it like exciting. We weren't in a pub having a few beers because we're sprawled across okay. eight time zones. <laughs> but um, we did have uh, Peter's in Pacific time, US and Helen's in, in UK time. It was Skype calls and phone calls and, and chatting in private text messages right. and laughing our heads off very frequently about the things we were going to try to do. And then immensely stressful and difficult reading and writing to try to make the papers come to life. Yes, a lot of work. It was an, an, an extraordinary amount of work. I mean, we wrote over a quarter million words of papers in 10 months of, at the academic level, paper level. And so it was an insane amount of work. Um, we wrote them literally as fast as we could. I worked almost every minute I was awake on this stupid project. And in the end, it wasn't that stupid, though, because we ended up getting seven of them accepted for publication. We had seven more that were still under consideration that were not hoax papers. We got caught by the Wall Street Journal. Journalists started digging around because things started looking mysterious when the papers actually started coming out, and they're ridiculous. And one of the main criticisms, and I'm sure Helen would have told you this, that we were receiving was, we don't even know the fields that we're talking about. Well, you know what? We're going to go get our papers accepted enthusiastically by the highest level journals that will take them, including the leading feminist philosophy journal, Hypatia. That was the one that was about, you're not allowed to criticize any woke uh, thought. That's right. Yeah, you're not allowed to use humor against wokeness. You would definitely not be allowed to do a project of academic hoaxes. You, that would definitely not be okay. This was quite postmodern what you did. Oh yeah, <laughs> very. I told you I like the postmodern <laughs> art aesthetic. I suppose some people are saying, so, so what you showed up was that they're not being tight enough on what, what is okay for academic papers when we're talking about woke stuff, that they let anything go. Some critics have said that that would be the case for any background. Right. So, I, I mean, they're not totally wrong that there are problems in knowledge production in all fields, and they're not wrong that those problems are problems and therefore they need to be addressed. They are wrong to criticize us for addressing one <laughs> if all such problems that exist need to be addressed and we addressed one, then we did the thing that they're actually saying needs to be happening. Unless they're saying that we shouldn't address problems. What we showed was, again, two primary things. A lot of people think we showed that peer review and the whole academic standards in those fields is bullshit. We did not show that. We tried to show that and we failed to show that. It was first six papers we wrote, which are absolute hoaxes, did not succeed. These people know what they're talking about. They understand what they're doing. They understand the concepts that they're writing about very clearly. What we showed, therefore, is that the, the academic subculture in those fields thinks the stuff we wrote is good ideas. And that's a much more horrifying thing because those things that we wrote are not good ideas. And we, you know, we used leaps of logic. We used asinine invented data. Like that dog park data was transparently nonsense. One of the issues with having a podcast is I tend to have people on whose views I agree with um, because I want them to share it afterwards. 
So what I did after Helen's one is I spoke to a friend of mine in academia and I said, "If what, what mm. would you have asked? She listened to it. So do you mind if I read out her criticism of, of the grievance studies? Sure. With the acknowledgement, it's not, uh, these are not the views of me. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, distance yourself from that. Go ahead, you white supremacist. Exactly, because I want you to share all this stuff. Um, it really is nasty. It's bad faith. I also think... Does she call Helen fat? I hope she calls Helen fat. She does not. No, no, she's actually a really nice person. And I think she actually... No, that's actually true, usually. Why would woke people call her fat? Like, that's not woke. <sighs> There's different types of woke. It, the mean ones definitely go after her for it constantly. Okay, this, this person I know is actually not mean at all and is very level-headed, but is more towards the woke thing than I am and definitely than you are. But it really is nasty. It's bad faith. She obviously has this idea she's a great defender of free speech and quotes Milton. But what she's doing is going to undermine radical academic, scientific and philosophical thought and discovery because it's going to make editors and referees more cautious about publishing stuff that pushes the boundaries. So she may well be achieving the opposite of what she claims she wants. Years ago, when I used to work for uh, an academic journal, I won't say which one, the editor told me he would sometimes override the views of the referees because they can be too cautious and that he thought Einstein's theory of relativity would never have been published by a journal that didn't have an editor who was prepared to be brave and take risks. I definitely like the idea of being brave and taking risks, but... There's a total difference between taking risks and being too cautious on the other side of that and having completely lost track of what epistemology and ethics actually are. Of course, we want to push the boundaries of current knowledge. Of course, we want to push the boundaries of the perspectives that you know might be limited that are preventing us from seeing that relativity theory is is actually a better conception of the world than 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 newtonian mechanics i think one of her criticisms and i think it's something that i've done before in my documentaries where i've sort of led someone to believe so for example an abusive exorcist i've led him to believe that i'm impressed by his powers or whatever because i'm trying to expose him for what he is actually doing with women and stuff and, and for being mm -hmm. a charlatan uh it's what sasha baron cohen does uh with ali g and borat and all of those things and i suppose you guys would do that so i mean was there ever a feeling of like uh, there are real people whose careers could be a little bit ruined by this oh god yeah i mean i luckily it's all on tape and it'll probably a lot of it will come out i actually recorded myself struggling with this repeatedly i never wanted it to be about the people i i actually somebody asked me recently joe rogan it was joe rogan i was on joe rogan's podcast two and a half million people have seen it he asked me you know something about how i felt about this with the woman who gave the dog park paper an award. And of course, I thought it was hilarious that it got an award and it was this monumental, happy thing. But at the same time, I felt horrible oh, for the person. Yeah, I never wanted it to be about them. It was actually, for me, it's actually just about the epistemology and the ethics. Mm. But no, we should not step into sophistry, making things up and so on. And that line actually is difficult to identify and, and navigate. But one clear, very clear, bright aspect of that line that everybody can see is that when a set of theories begins to publish arguments that are either utterly unfalsifiable, cannot even be disagreed with in principle, now you know you're dealing with a sophist. No academic journal has the responsibility to advance thinking, to be academically so free that they're promoting that. 
And if you want, we can start I, privilege preserving epistemic pushback. We were we thought that was so funny. Ha ha ha. Alison Bailey, 2017, published in Hypatia, leading feminist philosophy journal. Alison Bailey's argument is that when people try to criticize social justice scholarship, as she phrases it, you can't disagree. And she goes further to say that the reason that people disagree, so now she's in their psychology, the reason they disagree is because they have privilege and they wish to preserve their privilege. You see this in, in Barbara Applebaum. It's called being uh, white, being good, or being good, being white. I forget which way it goes. I get it backwards every time. Yeah, and white fragility as well. Well, white fragility arose out of Applebaum's being white, being good. Uh, she makes very clearly the argument there's only one way legitimate to, that's, a, that's legitimate to disagree with social justice scholarship, which is to ask questions for further clarification until you agree. Everything else is illegitimate. This is not philosophy at this point. You are no longer doing philosophy when it can't be disagreed with. And again, you brought up white fragility. That's the third example we give at the end of chapter eight. And very explicitly, she extends the idea to, to the level that's preposterous. If you're accused of, of racism as a white person or even of white fragility itself, white people become psychologically, again, in their heads, become uncomfortable with race. They don't have the racial stamina or the racial humility to engage with race honestly. And so they then deploy a series of rhetorical strategies. In other words, they're just talking themselves out of a corner. That's what white fragility is, is the deployment of those. And those rhetorical strategies include disagreeing, becoming emotional, crying. If you read White Fragility, the book, chapter 11 is white woman's tears. Oh. Um, going away, staying silent, refusing to participate. All You have no options except to agree that you are a racist and that you are showing white fragility or else you're showing white fragility. This is, again, this is sophistry. This is not philosophy. You, again, have an unfalsifiable situation. You said you're a Jew, so if I say something and you say that offends me as a Jew, what the hell can I say? Mm. I have no options. And if we have to take that at face value that I've now participated in a global system of anti-Semitism. I, I, I tend to agree with you. I, I, I would never want to say to someone, you know, set them up in that Kafka trap or it's Catch-22 of saying, hang on, I'm Jewish, I'm offended or whatever. But what starts to happen is I hang around with a lot of people who are very, very woke and who talk endlessly mm -hmm. about microaggressions and safe spaces and all these things. And I don't know if you agree, but Helen was talking about how Jews have been kicked out of the woke uh, pyramid. Um, oh, so yeah. the very people... It's I'm, bad. You guys are in a bad place. And, and it's okay. You know, I don't need to be a big victim. It's fine. I've got a lot of other privileges or whatever. I'm speaking like them now. God. You might end up being a big victim and it won't be fine, but... Hopefully not. But what I mean is like the very people who are talking to me about microaggressions and all these things will then say when I'm about to pay for the bill, uh, like, oh, you know, Jewish, you're stingy, but you're not going to pay, are you? Or something like that, which from anybody else, I'd be like, oh, all right, okay, yeah, you got me. But from these people who are so, so sensitive to every other minority's like whatever, that's when I do get really wound up. I, I, I stop speaking to those people because I just think I can't, if your mind can't understand that one thing is like the other, then I just don't even want to hang around with you anymore. Yeah, the picture for, for Jews, particularly white Jews, is as they're often described um, in, in critical race theory, is not a pretty one. It's not pretty. Like this, we start talking about dark stuff. <laughs> this is dark stuff. Because the problem for you, my friend, looking at you, and that's enough, is that you have white privilege, but you can also, the second you get pressed on your privilege, you can claim, hold on, I'm a Jew, Holocaust, ah, I'm oppressed, I'm a minority. And you have a shield where you no longer, the theory says you have a shield where you don't have to engage with your white privilege because you have Jewish oppression. And that's totally illegitimate. And it gets you out of having to do the anti-racism work. So now what the theory posits is that Jews become like super white people <laughs> who have, all the white privilege, 
plus tons of access to the status and resources in society, but no obligation to do the work that they're demanding. And so you become like the supervillain. Super white. If white, if whiteness is the is the power of the enemy, Jews have uh, because of the Holocaust and you know, well, essentially four thousand years or five thousand years, however long it's been, of basically getting fucked over by history everywhere you turn. They have this, you know oppression trump card they can throw down and so you become literally like the supervillain of the story and when jews become the supervillain of an ideological narrative that's gaining social and cultural hegemony any good Mm. that's dark dark times that's like canary in the coal mine stuff for me i'm like uh uh-oh we've seen this before yeah you know this is not good and so you have, I don't, you know, I don't want to get you pissed off at your friends or whatever, but you do have your, your instinct there, your, your moral intuition that something's deeply wrong with that is correct. Um, I'm all about making jokes yeah, yeah, and everybody making jokes back and forth at each other, because that's, I think that's actually this part of the solution to this sure. problem. I think that's how friends interact with one another. It's how you navigate difference in a f- usually fun occasionally it slips and messes up but in a relatively safe way because you know you you can trust that your friends in this situation don't really mean it and they're testing to see how you're going to react to the little joke and and you take it in good humor and if you can take things in good humor now there's there's a discussion i'm actually a huge proponent of not racist but yes racial jokes because they often they they actually soften the relationship across that difference um, and they're funny. I mean, it's actually easy to be funny. Like I have many, many friends who are Jewish who call who, are, who stress the ish. I don't know if you, you do that. Well, I'm not Jewish. I'm Jew-ish. <laughs> well, yeah, when you're an atheist, it's, it's a funny thing because you so many Jewish people are atheists. I'm a devout atheist if you can be one. Uh, and, and Sure. So you're Jew-ish. Yeah, I don't even have many Jewish friends or anything like that. I just become a little bit aware when all this stuff, like you said, is happening. I become a bit like, oh, God, what's happening? I mean, it, because I know that if Hitler were around today, me saying I'm an atheist is not really enough. When the joke against you is okay, but no jokes against us or whatever are acceptable. Now you've got the seeds for something really, really ugly to develop. I mean, that's where the, that's where real oppression rather than made up oppression starts to exist. Bloody hell. Bloody hell. Is that a saying on your island? <laughs> I think you're aware that it is because you've used a few um, British idioms. Um, well, I read all of the Harry Potters a bunch of times. and Is that what this is really about? It's just J.K. Rowling fans versus non-J.K. Rowling fans? Because I love her. I love her too. I think she's great. Uh, no, because I don't know. It's like there's this whole category of people who are like the biggest J.K. Rowling uh, fan, mostly girls, in the history of of humanity who have like now burned all their memorabilia. Yeah. I mean, burning books has never been, I mean, it's like you haven't picked up a history book. If you think it's burning books, as the, I mean, people at Hachette wanted to do that or to stop the publication of her children's books. And like throughout history, that's never been a good sign. <laughs> How can you think you're on the good side? It's not a good sign. What did you say before you, I think you said bollocks. Did you say bollocks? Bollocks, yeah, I did. I, I mean, I like bollocks. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't call anybody. Yeah, yeah. I got you with yeah. that one. Um, <laughs> I didn't call anybody a wanker. I didn't call anybody, you know, you guys have the best, like from an American perspective, your little insults are just so like funny. There's been a running joke on the podcast because my dad listens and he doesn't like that I swear. I mean, that's the thing though, right? Is like with the, the humor that we we're talking about, everybody's okay with somebody being a git, but nobody wants anybody to be a wanker. It's very straightforward, yeah. right? There's a line between git and wanker. And if you understand that, then you can make the joke. 
I haven't heard Git in years. It's all over Git. in Harry Potter. Is it Git? Oh, you know what? Ron must say it. I'm sure Ron says it. The the Weasleys, yeah. You're the world's biggest git. That's Percy Weasley. He's the world's biggest git. Thanks for listening. I think if you're a fan of James's, in which case you're familiar with all the jargon, the episode was hopefully enlightening and entertaining. If not, then I hope some of his ideas made sense. It may also be that you found he goes a bit too far. He is quite aggressive and confident in the way he speaks, a little like Jordan Peterson or Christopher Hitchens. And we don't all have to agree about everything. I'm not sure, for example, that I've seen enough evidence to suggest most woke people do intend to allow paedophilic relations. And a race war seems some way off, for British listeners at least. But maybe it doesn't seem that way in the States, where things seem to be heating up. Let me know what you thought. Get in touch. Tag me on Twitter and Instagram, andrewgold underscore OK. I always get back to people who are asking questions and making comments, and I love hearing from listeners. There are now thousands of listeners, which is really something amazing, something I didn't expect to happen so quickly. So thank you for tuning in and sticking with the podcast. Uh, it's on most podcast platforms, but Spotify have asked that I say, simply search for On the Edge with Andrew Gold on Spotify to listen free. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.